0: Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Steven Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And today I'm joined by my amazing co-host and partner in crime, Lisette Trujillo.
1: Hello, everyone. Lisette here, she, her, i have I've gotta say I'm really looking forward to our conversation with today's guest, Jenny Set Gutierrez.
0: Lisette, we are moving right along. This is episode 16.
1: I know, right? Like, it's so exciting. I can't believe we're already on episode 16. It's going to be a good one.
0: So folks, welcome once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. All right, Lisette, I've been watching your socials. I've been seeing all kinds of activity. You got to bring me up to speed. What's been going on?
1: Steven, we're having so much fun. Daniel turned 16. Yeah, I have to say it's a little bittersweet because he's my only, and so this is where kind of like he's gonna be 18 in two years. It did fly by, like when people would tell me when he was a baby, Oh, it flies by so fast. I was like, Oh, I hate these people, <laughs> and now I'm like, It does. They weren't lying, it was they real. were not
0: lying. It's real, it's real. I have had three 16 birthdays. And I have one more to go. So yeah. Cherish it while it lasts. Cause yeah, they just so fly by. Sweet.
1: He like hates me and loves me all at the same time. I never thought it would happen. He's like, I know mom. And then like 10 minutes later, he'll be like, I love you. Sorry. I'm like, Oh, it's real.
0: It's, it's real. like emotional
1: whiplash. Um, <laughs> <laughs> by our, By our teens. Uh, Let's see. Other things. Um, I mean, well, you know, I run a parent community down here. So it's like back to school and all the things that happen and pop up with, you know, schools not knowing their legal obligations in bathrooms or like how to navigate, you know, pronouns. It's always so stressful at the beginning of the school year. So I'm always glad that people trust me to help them in their journeys
0: and then you know um, so, so I'm I, I'm gonna jump in really quickly because yeah. yesterday I got an email uh about Governor Murphy and the Murphy administration like re-upping on their policies for supporting LGBTQ plus people. And so like this past school year and and partially into this summer, there are a bunch of School districts that were deciding that they were just going to do away with the New Jersey policy with respect to affirming transgender people, you know, bathrooms, pronouns, names, ability to play on sports teams. And so the Murphy administration was like, nope, we have one policy for the entire state. School boards do not get a say in what it is. You must implement these policies that are trans affirming that are LGBTQ plus supportive or else. And our attorney general don't play, but I think the Murphy administration ratcheted it up a little more to be like, you know what, school districts, stop wilding, do this or else. So I can see how it could be a challenging time for parents of LGBTQ plus people, because sometimes these schools be wilding.
1: Um, yeah, I've gone in a couple of times too. I've been lucky enough to to sit in some of those meetings with other families and be like a parent advocate for them. And I can tell you that (laughs) I feel like they forget that we have federal protections. I'm like, you can, you can want to change it. Um, And you can say it's not protected at the state. And then we can come back and say, but it is at the federal level. So get it together,
0: get it together. (laughs) Federal supersede state. Sorry.
1: You know, like, I mean, yeah, they passed a bathroom ban here and then it got vetoed. So it's like, so, some people are like, well, it passed. And then you have to remind them it got vetoed. And either way, Title IX. So,
0: either way, it's either just, way Title IX.
1: Either way, Title IX. So, it's interesting when people are like, oh, oh, legalities. It's a lot of me like par- getting messages from parents and then me sending them links to send to the school. Send this to the school. Highlight this part. Um, yeah school people are funny you know it's because we live in a permission-based society and permission-based societies while while law and order are in place it's how you keep people marginalized yep. and like this idea that like that we have to ask permission for for a correct bathroom is ridiculous but it's back to school hello august <laughs> this has been the norm for a few years I'm glad that your state got ratchet. I'm glad that they were like, mm mm.
0: Yeah, um, I, I just the the problem with this is that this is our governor's second term, and you know, a Democratic governor for eight years. Just the the winds of change are coming, and it's more likely than not going to be a Republican governor for the next at least four. So while there's so much positivity now. You know that that's not going to necessarily be the the case moving forward. Even though we don't necessarily plan on having a you know a, a, a legislative body that is anything but blue, you right. know, you never know what can happen. You never
1: know. Well, maybe you'll have to run for office or something. As if. <laughs> well, tell me what's new in your life.
0: Um. Okay. So. I had a conversation with my mother a few days ago because she got an article that someone sent her that my other brother Anthony had posted on LinkedIn, and it was an article from The Washington Post where Hobbes's, like the origin story for his name was turned into a comic strip. And I talked about this and she never saw it. I don't think she's even remotely aware of the type of person I am as it relates to being an activist in this, in this space. And so she's, she doesn't follow me on the ticker talkers. <laughs> she, she's not, on, she's not seeing any of my, any it's of like, my Facebook posts. Life. <laughs> I have a whole nother life. Hobbs has a whole life that she's completely unaware of. And so she called me and she she texted me and she was frantic. She was just like, people are sending me all this stuff. I don't even know what's going on. And I had to remind her, I said, do you remember like four or five years ago when I told you that, you know, your, your grandson was transgender and I sent you information from the human rights campaign about how to support transgender children and you just fought me tooth and nail and you weren't having it. Well, You may be stuck where you were, but we've all moved on. Like, you don't even know your grandchild's proper name. You're still referring to them by their dead name. And they have a whole new name since December 21st. All their documents, their birth certificate, their passports, everything has been changed. And they've been to the White House and they're getting letters from the president. Like All kinds of things have happened that you're not aware of. And that's on you. To her credit, though she was just like, can you send me that information again? Good. Yesterday, I dropped off a human rights campaign like magazine that I get, as well as that document that the uh, American Medical Association, American Association of Pediatric Doctors or whatever, and HRC created. I printed it out, and I took them both over there for her to read it. And she was just like, thank you so much. So what started off as a really bad kind of familial interaction regarding my child ended up being something that, you know, it remains to be seen, but it's, it's looking much more positive. So that happened. And that was, that was a lot. That was a lot.
1: I'm sorry, Steven. I mean, I can send you some links too. I'm glad she's coming along. So I want to, I want to interject as you would say, because I had a similar experience during pride month. So, you know, we did the piece with Univision and um, my sister-in-law calls me because she works for Univision and she was like, um, I know I haven't been a part of your journey um, at all, but they asked me to write a piece about how to support LGBTQ youth in your family. And so can you send me links and resources? And I was like, like really nervous about it because she really has not been a part of our journey and so you know Jose and I were like oh my god is it gonna be like when Oprah's dad right would talk to the media and you'd be like ah right. so, so she's like no 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 it's just like how to support blah 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 and then later on she's like I wrote like five pages and I was like, oh no, what does this mean? You know, cause Chewy's family was so unsupportive. They were so difficult and they too, much like your mom, have been kind of in and out, but, and they, but they, and they use correct names and pronouns, but they have no idea of like our life, right? Like they're not in our community spaces Like, like I'm having a birthday party for Daniel and like, they're always sort of like last minute in case, but they have no interaction with Daniel at all whatsoever. Um, And so she wrote the piece and we've asked her for it and she has yet to send it. Univision sent us a link, but it's behind an employee like email sign in. So no one's giving it to us. And I was like, what do you think it says?
0: So wow. it's interesting
1: to have like family kind of interject or family like, yeah, like, w- cause it is, you and I have gone on a whole emotional growth journey. You know, we, we started as someone with a certain mindset that grew up with people and then our families have taken us on a different journey and we're not connected to those people in the same way anymore, just because we've grown so much.
0: And Absolutely. so there's
1: still, there's still like seven, like today is actually Daniel's eight year anniversary from when social transition started. So you know, I know he was eight, you know, he was like this little person being like, ah, uh, you know, I know. What do you tell me? He's like, I know in my heart and my mind, I'm a boy or something like that. And I was like, Oh, okay, here we are. So, Today was like the official start of it. And like to have my sister-in-law be like, I'm going to write five pages. I was like, five pages about what? I haven't even written a book. And I have a lot of stories.
0: (laughs) What's so crazy about that is that they're asking her to write an article about supporting your family. And she's asking you for links, which clearly doesn't have on her own and or she hasn't done her own work. Cause it's like, I'm thinking you're writing from a first person perspective. This is how I supported my family member. That's why they're asking you to write it, but they have to come to you to ask for links to figure out how they can support, which is, you know, good and bad, but it's interesting to say the least. Um, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you thank you for interjecting that, that, that was a welcome interjection. Um, so what else has been going on? Uh, obviously it's back to school as well for for everyone here all the kids and this is the crazy part four different kids three different schools three different start dates and they're all like when are you taking me down to you know baltimore when are you taking me down to dc when are we going to back i'm like listen y'all need to like put something on my calendar. Like, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not trying to keep up with y'all anymore. Y'all need to keep up with me. I have a job, okay? I have a life. I have other things going on besides you. Yeah, I brought y'all into the world. And yeah, it's my fault that you're here, partially anyway. And yeah, I have a responsibility to take care of you and all those other things because I'm a parent. But y'all need to stop acting like I'm a parent, okay? (laughs) This is just too much, okay? When you be like, oh, I only have one. And I have problems. I'm like, child, just count your blessings, count your blessings, because sometimes I'm just like, which what day is it? I don't even know what day it is. Like somebody (laughs) knock on my door. I don't even know who the child is that comes through the door. Sometimes I'm just that out of it. So, yeah, I'll be looking forward to when they are when at least half of them are out of the house, because. You know, I'll go back to some quiet, go back to some clean, you know, more clean, less dishes, less laundry, less groceries. That's
1: what I was going to (laughs) say. Less groceries.
0: You this summer has been just breaking my pockets, like $250, $300 a week on groceries. You know, turn around. Where's the milk? Why don't I have any milk? Why is the gallon of milk that I bought yesterday almost gone? Why is there just a swallow today? anyone <laughs>
1: can anyone you're like oh you could not survive on um you know cereal oat milk
0: just breathe i'm just kind of woo saw because yeah. you know thinking about all the foolishness I'm just, I'm just like brother is hungry a brother just wants to eat a bowl of cereal can a brother get a bowl <laughs> of cereal in the morning is that too much to ask these are the these are the challenges these are the challenges that i have but Before I go too far down the rabbit hole of parental lament, let's get to today's topic and talk about what's happening in the rest of the world, because shit is off the chain. Let's do it. All right, so let's talk about Oklahoma.
1: Oh my God, okay, let's get into
0: it. On Tuesday, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt directed state agencies to use extremely narrow definitions of male and female in what is the latest attack on transgender rights in a state that already has laws targeting bathroom use, healthcare, and sports teams for transgender people. Now, mind you, he did this with the support of anti-trans organization Women's Voices and Riley Gaines, who was by his side during the announcement. Now, Stitt's order dubbed the Women's Bill of Rights by its supporters is the latest Oklahoma policy to attack the rights of transgender people, and it's really part of a growing trend in conservative states. For example, Stitt signed a bill earlier this year that made it a crime for healthcare workers to provide gender-affirming medical care to minors, and has previously signed measures to prohibit transgender girls and women from playing on female sports teams and preventing transgender children from using school bathrooms that corresponded to their gender identity.
1: I'm so tired of the right utilizing the art of war against us, Stephen. Trans women are women. The feminist movement cannot be an effective, inclusive movement without including the rights of transgender people. But the right is so effective at this tactic, so effective at dividing already marginalized, already not fully equal people when it comes to policy, into being divided and fighting against each other. This is crazy for me. This is bananas.
0: It's like, you know, you always say, right has a really good playbook and they're really good at this stuff. They're really good at this stuff.
1: And for some odd reason, we're too dumb to notice the repeat, which we'll see later on in this episode. Because like, how do you not see it coming again?
0: Enough of, of my rant. No, no, no. It's all good. Speaking of how do you not see it coming again? Another brand has come under fire for their support of transgender people. Doc Martens, you know, the famous iconic boot, Doc Marten. They're facing backlash after a queer artist created a pair of the 1460 Doc Martin boot featuring two characters with top surgery scars.
1: (laughs) No, Steven, like I love Doc Martens. These are like a staple in our home. What did Doc Martens do to stand up against this? Because I'm like, do I have to throw them away? I haven't No, 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 no,
0: no, 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 no. So unlike Target, unlike Bud Light, unlike some of these other brands, Doc Martens doubled down in their support of the transgender community. They were like, I mean, they immediately issued a statement saying, you know what? We stand with our LGBTQ plus people and we are not going to, you know, stop supporting this community this is how allies are supposed to act and that's how doc Barton did i was super happy because i was i was like like literally squeezing my sphincter hoping to not run across an article where they did some dumb shit like pull the contest pull the boot took down the, the tweet did whatever some of these other brands do when they get this backlash they stood in the breach and they were like yeah we got you
1: Oh thank God, because I was like, "Oh, oh no, We're gonna have to break up. We're gonna have to throw away some shoes nope, you least. can still
0: you can still rock your docks.
1: Oh, thank goodness
0: so we have intentionally not talked about this topic on our previous episodes, but I think we would be remiss if we didn't raise this today. I want to acknowledge the passing of Camden Ryder. Camden Ryder is a transgender man who was killed on July 21st in an act of intimate partner violence, which also took the life of Camden's unborn child. Camden was eight months pregnant at the time of their death. And that makes this tragedy even more painful.
1: We also have to honor the life of O'Shea Sibley, who was a 28-year-old professional dancer in New York City. He was voguing to Beyonce's newest album, Renaissance, which is an ode to BIPOC queer ballroom culture, when a man approached Sibley and made homophobic comments towards him. That then led to the man stabbing Sibley to death. They are investigating it as a hate crime. I think we've tried to avoid, we've intentionally not avoided, but intentionally not wanted to share the violence that happens continuously to black and brown queer people. But I think it's so important for us to highlight when these stories occur in a way that's respectful and thoughtful because people need to be made aware that the heightened rhetoric and discrimination that people are facing lead to these acts of violence. And so um, our hearts are with the families of both Camden and Sibley and we could just can't imagine how difficult this time is for them
0: yeah it's it's one thing to talk about the rhetoric it's one thing to call out the allies and assholes it's another thing to stare down the 16 transgender people that have been killed this year so far the countless other lgbtq people who've also been subjects to violence like Sibley and it's it's a problem that we do need to address head on and really acknowledge is happening in our world
1: absolutely absolutely
0: but enough with the happenings in the world let's get to today's guest shall we
1: Denise Gutierrez is an activist for transgender and immigrant rights, a founding member of La Familia Trans Queer Liberation Movement. Much of her activist work supports trans women detained for their immigration status. La Familia Trans Queer Liberation Movement works at the national and local levels to achieve the collective liberation of LGBTQ Latinx people by leading an intergenerational movement through community organizing, advocacy, and education. Gutierrez has been working with the organization, hosting demonstrations, rallies, and dialogues, as well as fundraising for the liberation of undocumented transgender people of color facing unsafe environments in detention centers. She was named on Out Magazine's Out 100 list in 2015 and made it onto People's 25 Most Powerful Women list in 2023. Recognized as one of the pioneering activists shedding light on the plight of transgender folks in immigration detention centers, Gutierrez is most famously known for interrupting President Obama during his White House speech in honor of Pride Month to call attention to the struggles of transgender individuals in detention. Everyone, please welcome Jenice Gutierrez to the show. Welcome to our podcast, Jenny Set. Thank you so much for joining the show.
0: So Jenny said, I'm sure you've been asked this question all the time. But as, as a black person who was very happy to elect <laughs> President Obama for all his faults, what inspired you to cut Obama off mid-speech during pride?
2: Hi, said, Hi, Steven. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Jenny Gutierrez. My pronouns are she, her, hers, eh, yeah. I think what inspired me to take action during the LGBT Pride Month at the White House in 2015 under President Obama was a combination of things, right? I think for one, myself living in this country undocumented for over 20 years, patiently waiting for my immigration status to take place And instead, doors were being shut down. Opportunities were very, very few. So I always lived under constant fear in some way to be sort of discovered that I was undocumented in this country. Every time I received any sort of documentation for human resources, I always like had a panic attack to some extent, right? Like, Did they know? Are they asking for proof or things like that? So that was a very personal, you know, connection to this issue of undocumented LGBTQ folks, you know, living in this country. And then um, once I got involved and, you know, started to really see that there were so many other people in similar circumstances, like waiting, they have been here for years and their immigration status wasn't being resolved. And, you know, I remember when President Obama won the first time uh, in 2008, I believe, something like that. And it seems so far, you know, so long ago, but it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been that long. But when he won, I was like super happy right that that he made history i went out to celebrate with a friend and i was i was emotional because i really thought he was gonna give us the solutions that the community needed right in particular undocumented immigrants who have been living in the in the us for years and once he got in place that promise of immigration you know reform once he started to leave the nation, that never really came about. And, you know, when he won re-election in 2012, again, many people put hopes on him that, you know, there will be an immigration reform. And what's happening, it was the number of deportations were increasing right? So many people were being deported, some by his administration, other people were self-deporting themselves. And it got to the point where I just, you know, I got to that, like, I I can no longer be living in fear. I just have to, you know, do what, what I have to do. And that's how I started to get involved. And I was ready to be deported, you know? And when we got that invitations to go... Um, I knew that that was just once in a lifetime potentially, and I had to really um, you know, take action. And I'm so fortunate to have two amazing leaders with experience in this particular issue with immigration who you know who who are still doing powerful work, you know, Jorge Gutierrez, who used to be the idea familia. Uh, Issa Noyola, a trans uh, Latina leader, and they both were able to trust me in this action, right? So I think it was just multiple things coming in my journey, and I just, you know, knowing all the injustices that were happening that I just couldn't fully celebrate because, you know, people deserve opportunities, they deserve, deserve protections.
0: It's true. It's so true it's it's so interesting you should say that because oftentimes in in the black community especially people reflect on Obama and even when he was in in office people have expectations that our leaders are going to do more than they they do that they ultimately do and sometimes I think we often put unrealistic expectations on our elected specifically the president I think some of our lower elected officials, or members of the House, members of the Senate, our state house uh, and and Senate, we think I think we have higher expectations of them because they are closer to the ground. We are their actual constituents. Where the president is a little different, but I I, I feel you. I I see a lot of the things that happened during Obama's um, tenure, and they weren't positive, and they didn't reflect some of the democratic values, and certainly not the values that he indicated he was holding on to when he came into office. So I could recognize that disappointment.
1: And I think too, like living through it, like we had a family member that was impacted by catch and release. Right. And so like people don't realize that, like that it's so inhumane and it separates families, um, in a way that you just, it's almost shocking, right? Like when it happens, you're just, you can't believe that you live in a country that does this. And we were under this idea that Obama was gonna be the shining light of liberation. And then there were so many reasons at play. I think that politicians often lean into, which is like, how do I get reelected? I gotta be moderate in some ways. And like, this is an unpopular issue. And so there's all these concessions that get made, but when you're living it, right, or seeing it through the eyes of your loved ones, it becomes such a painful reminder of how much work has to happen. People often do not realize that we don't become activists, right? Like you didn't wake up and go, I can't wait to be an activist, but rather it's like experiencing oppression, seeing it firsthand. That's what pushes you into action. And you talk about this what keeps you brave like i know that there's some days where i'm like i'm i'm done um or you know and then you realize you can't be done but like what keeps you brave and not only brave but like forward looking
2: yes thank you for that question lisa i think at times with everything we've been dealing as the community with covid and everything else that it's unfolding, it's easy, right? To just get burned out, to give up. But I think for me, what keeps me looking forward, and I see the light in some way, right? I think it's grounding in the power of community, grounding myself in the history of trans woman in particular. Even before the White House action, I was so fortunate to attend a speaking, you know, engagement of, um, uh, oh, excuse me, you know, Janet Mock. But I went to see her speak at a university in Southern California, and she showed the video of Sylvia Rivera in 1972 at Washington Square in New York City, how she just wanted to. Call out, right, the community for not supporting and centering trans and you know gender non-binary folks and all the the struggles that they were facing, including living on the streets, lacking access to food, education, all these all their basic needs, right? So I think learning about Sylvia Rivera, learning about Marsha P. Johnson, and any other person before them that have been truly active. Right. When I was living in L.A., I also met a trans Latina elder who was with very limited resources, got involved in in a group to support even members out of her community because she saw the need of people struggling, you know, with addiction, people struggling with uh, different, you know, mental health and so many other things that the system does poorly to address are really solved, you know? So I think for me, always will be uh, trans people, the backbone of change, right? Like the ones that will really question so many things, what's wrong in, in systems of oppression. Because even if we reach liberation, we're always having to be very critical of who gets to be in power, who gets to lead, because if we just repeat this cycle of, of you know, excluding people, of denying the basic needs to survive and for people to fully succeed and thrive, then we're doing a really disservice to the social justice movement. So I think for me, grounding in that powerful history, you know, it's very fundamental for me to continue to get up, to breathe, and to say that liberation is possible. And I don't know when that will take place, but that I keep pushing through it. I keep pushing through that and don't give up because that's what the system
0: wants us to do. So I'm going to go back to my my earlier question. You have not only been critical of President Obama, you've been critical of President Trump, You've been critical of President Biden. In fact, you refused an invitation of President Biden to attend you know, a Pride event just because you felt like this administration wasn't doing enough or, or wasn't keeping up to its promises. But what do you think at a federal level the United States can do to support and protect immigrants, especially transgender immigrants, people of color coming across the border? What do you think that this country can do or should be
2: doing? Again, I think under Obama, there was a promise and many people were hopeful to have an immigration reform, right? So families could really, truly change their immigration status. And guess what? Those families also include LGBTQ folks in this country, right? So we, we saw that under the two terms that did not happen, Trump came in place and he completely shut the door down on immigration or any type of hope, any type of dialogue, any type of really finding a solution, right? That has been, this immigration reform has been sort of wanting to be a center or a priority for a different administration, even under Bush, you know, that, and then the two two 2001, um, world trade center attacks and that just totally blew that opportunity to truly have an immigration reform to have this debate to have this conversation and then you know trump completely again shut that down and didn't even want to have the conversation and he went the opposite like let's get tougher let's build the wall let's deport people let's keep people divided all these things you know and and including children right that were separated by the parents which is so Inhumane and so not the solution that people really need and deserve because the humanity is more important than any policy. You know, so then we have you know the current administration that again he was the vice president under Obama and could have pushed harder to find the solution and finally give a relief to millions of people living in this country without an immigration status, and he just completely did not deliver. And we do have upcoming presidential elections, and it doesn't seem that immigration is going to be a priority. And by that, I mean an immigration reform, which could be a solution that Congress and you know the House of Representatives and the Senate can really make it a priority, and finally give people a chance to stay in this country without having to live in fear, without having to worry about being deported and leaving their family behind because many had children that were born in this country. So all this fear, it's enough. I think year after year after year, even when you do change, you know, your immigration status, you're still walking on a thin line. Because if you make any minor uh, offense or, or get in trouble, there is a risk that you can take be taking that, you know, green card away. And that means you're going back. It's easier for them not to find a solution and continue to keep you oppressed and in the shadows and in fear than actually taking the risk and being bold in leadership and take all the punches from from conservatives and say enough is enough and let's find the solution. So I think that immigration reform should be a priority, but everything is on hold at this point. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know who's going to win, you know, if Biden will be reelected. I don't know who's going to be the candidate, but it's going to be a very difficult fight. And especially because other issues are also being, you know, challenged and, and centered and are urgent. So it's 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 just we just have to be, that's what I, I do what I do, right? That's what I don't give up. And I wanna continue to organize and build our people power because that is the biggest tool we have to actually hold elected officials accountable and find solutions.
1: I think people don't even realize the ways in which uh, language matters. Like, for example, the Muslim ban was effectively an immigration ban, right, on a specific subset of people. But because there's different language, there's ties to bias and racism against Muslim people, right? I think that a child separation was a testing ground to see if they could separate trans youth from their families, right? And because white families of trans youth cannot conceive of this, when it happened, they were like, this can't happen to us. They can't take our children away for being transgender. And I'm like, they just did it at the border. And also too, when we talk about the border, we think of immigration as like the stagnant thing that happens in the South. And the reality is, is that people fly in, people are coming in from all over the globe. And so, there's a, so many implications, It's such a big, it's such a big conversation. And yet it happens in these little moments. Like for us, we couldn't change what well, we could have. We didn't change Daniel's name legally because we knew we were waiting on Jose's naturalization interview. And all it would take was one person seeing Daniel's name change and deciding no, you're not going to get your application because when you interview for citizenship, it's one person that gets to decide, right? Like they look at your file, you sit in there and you pray that they're going to let you become a naturalized citizen. And I can't tell you the relief I felt when Jose came out of that room and said, and said, okay, I was approved because I thought, oh, they could just take him. (laughs) And that's what it feels like. Like they could just take your loved one away from you and rip them from you at any second. And so I just, I appreciate all the work you're doing. I appreciate that you put yourself on the line because that I see you as like, you know how you're like, you get inspired. I see you're that inspiration for me. I, I'm like always like pinching myself that I get to be in space with you.
0: Can I jump in really quickly, because that's something that, that I also have to say, Lisa and I have been doing this podcast for a couple of months. We haven't been doing it for, for that long, but every time we have an opportunity to interview someone new, it gives me an opportunity, especially if I don't know them. If if, if Lisette introduces them, then I do my homework. If I introduce them, Lisette has to do more homework, but this time I had to do more homework, and so I was just looking up who you were, and it was so funny because the first thing that I saw was White House heckler. <laughs> That's how you are known. And I'm like, White House heckler, like you can't just get into the White House. So whoever this person is was good enough, was important enough, was significant yep. enough that she got the invitation in the first place. So that was, was like, mm. and And then she I keeps started,
1: getting invited. And she keeps getting <laughs>
0: invited. So obviously it's not, whatever you did was not so offensive that people were like, never again. But then I started looking and I saw that it's that you just do the work day in and day out. That's your ethos, your ethos, your energy, your spirit, your motivation comes from lived experience, obviously, because you know you were like, oh, for 20 years, I've been undocumented. I'm like, how is somebody undocumented for 20 years? What kind of stupid State Department do we have that they cannot process people more quickly than 20 years. Like I was complaining about getting my passport and it takes, you know, seven to 11 weeks to get a passport. At least I have the ability to get a passport. What if you don't even have the ability to get anything that says you are legitimately able to stay in this country and you've been here for more than 20 years? It doesn't make any sense. But as I was was doing the research, I was seeing how much on the ground, community building, advocacy and activism for other people that you've been doing, because you've expanded beyond just yourself, and you're looking at other marginalized and impacted communities. So I just wanted to say, like Lisette, like I was really excited to come on and talk to you because you're one of those rare people who has, notwithstanding the kind of personal risk that you've taken, you're still here kind of in these streets doing the work. So kudos to you.
1: And I want to say something
0: um,
1: really quickly because you said something important and I'm hoping that people will listen to this and understand the experience. I think conversations Jenny said and I have had, it took Chewy 25 years, right? Like waiting on status, it took Jenny set 20. And this was, and I think what people don't understand is the way that, that the immigration administration works is that they can change policy in-house. And so when Jose and Jenny said, arrived to this country you could pay a fine so they came technically they went through the legal route which you hear that rhetoric a lot well you should have came legally well there was a legal path forward at that point that under obama was shifted right um quietly especially after after 9 uh, the way that they were able to shift policy without it having to go through public discourse i think was honestly, a roadmap for what they're doing with anti-trans legislation now that we've seen um, DeSantis do effectively, that we've seen Paxton and Abbott try to do within their departments, right? Because there's an, there's an understanding of, of interdepartment function and policy. Um, Jenny said, do you want to talk to that? Because I know you and I have talked about that a lot, and I think people don't understand that.
2: Yeah, no, thank you both so much. I think these conversations are needed, they're critical, and they really help us understand the intersectionalities, the connections with other issues. I think you just went to some policies that happened under tram set. also you questioning why does it take so long, right, to change your immigration status. The system wants us to divide ourselves into issues that say that's not impacting me, but they already have a really strong strategy. How do we start with immigrants? How do we shift into trans communities? Oh, and let's look at the minors, because we care about children. But if you care, then why are you separating families? Why are you deporting parents? have children here so we have to be critical we have to continue to question right authority and that includes every department at the highest level and immigration it's you know it's one area that is very complicated and instead again of saying the process you come in with without a visa but then you apply and now we receive your application You have to pay a fee for that, and then you have to pay a penalty for crossing without a visa. So now you're in place, you're you're here still without a solution, but we know you're here. In the meantime, figure out a way to survive and pay taxes, because whenever you go through the process, you have to show proof that you created income and were sustaining yourself and not draining the system, whatever that means, right? Because we know who really drains the system is billionaires. So, you know, this is a very complicated issue. And I think the U.S. wanting to position itself as the the, the place of democracy and freedom and the other nations look up to, why does it take so long for people to truly want to find what they're here to do, to find their mission, to find their passion, to contribute, to, to, to thrive. You know, why does it have to take so long by the time people find solutions? So we're fortunate to get that solution. Again, as a trans woman of color, the, the life expectancy is 35. Fortunately and beyond that, but the chances of me getting an immigration status versus, you know, dying, it's probably more likely to be murdered, you know, and then my application is in place, then you, you know, she died, and they will never be considerate and say, oh, they pay these fees, here's your money back. No, they'll take it, they keep it, you know, so this is a really messy system that people abide by, because we have no other choice, but it is really, unfortunate that people have to wait so long and that impacts beyond undocumented LGBTQ folks, undocumented trans women. You saw Lissette's example of, you know, her partner and how all these implications. I have a cousin, right, who has been also waiting for so long and still cannot be, you know, and she's been here for years and years and I think they just want to tire you out to to just give up and say, you know, go back to where you came from when, you know, like it's, it's really unfortunate and I think it's hypocritical of the United States to really say this is the land of the free and we welcome people, but yes, you're here. And then you have to figure so many things out because
0: we don't prioritize your solutions, right? And it's really true if, you know, depending on where you're from, because if you came from Sweden, If you came from Canada, if you came from Germany, if you come from many other European nations as an immigrant and you apply for status, you are not spending 20 years on on any kind of queue waiting to have your status reviewed or updated. That's just not happening. But if you come from a black or brown country best believe you are going to be run through the gauntlet because they simply do not value certain bodies from certain places the way they do others. Like you said it right at the very beginning, the biggest drain on resources are not immigrants, are not undocumented people. It is billionaires. Rich white men are the biggest strain on our system because they do not put in and they take out far more they're entitled to and no one questions that we kind of turn a blind eye to it just because oh well it is the way it is like the number of billionaires in this country could end world not us world poverty could end hunger could end famine could end waste could end all of the problems but they are so interested in self-aggrandizement that that's all that matters i want to go to the moon I want to go under, on, under the ocean. I'm going to pay a million dollars for a seat on, you know, some rocket ship to go into sub zero. Like really when we have the un- unhoused, when we have the hungry, when we have children that are, you know, sitting in, in, in child welfare without any of their needs, it doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. And I just want to say too, for people listening, like Stephen and I are kids of immigrants. There's such a stereotype on what on what, uh, on who an immigrant is, right? Like there's there's all these stereotypes and ideas. And I mean, Stephen, you and I are proof that like, that's not true.
0: Not at all. Um,
1: not at all. Most people can't appreciate the experiences of people of color, immigrants or trans people, much less immigrants of color who are trans. What do you hope your work will ultimately accomplish in breaking down those boundaries?
2: yes. You know, I want to make a point to your both backgrounds as immigrants. I think at times if we look at the U.S. immigration system, but this is a global phenomenon, right? Like how they prioritize certain countries because they're considered, you know, rich of first, whatever, however they categorize them. When you travel other places, especially under COVID, I think you got to see that also inequalities, right? Because if you go to Europe through London, US and all these other countries get the priority and then African countries get to be sended because that's where supposedly, you know, all this racism and ideas. So there's always this very, you know, unfair treatment of how people are treated. And and if we look at the black immigrant community, they have been the ones that get deported the most that face the most harsh conditions under, you know, detention center across the country. You know, so it's just, I hope that the work that we do, that we find, you know, ourselves really building strong um, collective power, right, that we don't fall, just because now I have the privilege and was able to change my immigration status after years of waiting, that I don't want to prioritize the immigrant community, right? That I will continue to stay connected to where I come from, to my roots, and never forget that, never. Because I even had some families that think, you know, as horrible as this might sound, that Trump is the solution. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, it's just just so difficult to have these conversations because then you start gaining some sort of like uh, or upgrading your social economic status and you think that money is everything. But again, to me, I think holding people's dignity and humanity, humanity, it's more important than any profit you can ever make. So my hope is with the hard work that you know, Familia does and many other organizations across the country, what we have learned from the 60s during the civil rights movement, what we're learning during our times, you know, with all these attacks, that we do find a way to continue to provide direct services to people in need, because again, we know that the system isn't prioritizing or doing that for them, that we do continue to have more organizing, you know, retreats, that we continue to have, you know, political education, that we continue to have healing spaces. So it's just so many, but at the same time, being very realistic, right? Like one organization can only hold and do so much and then continue to move forward, and I think for a Familia at this particular moment, you know, Familia en el Sur, which is our current organizing strategy, it's very critical. And it was because there were other previous places where we travel across this, the U.S. and brought people together and told them, you know, you do have a place. If familia speaks to you, if you feel connected with, with the issues that we are advocating for, if you f- if you find familia as a political home, we need you. And I will say this, when the action happened, half my family were divided, right? They were like, no, that wasn't the right place. It wasn't the moment. But the more I started to open up about my own struggle, about my own pain of what it felt, because all my family came here with a visas. To, to, to some extent, they know what it is to live in fear they were split. And, and I remember getting back to LA when I, where I was living at my sisters and she was like really mad. I'm like, no, 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 that wasn't the moment. And I just turned around and say, you know what? I'm leaving and I will be back tomorrow or the next day. I just need you to relax and don't get into it. Right. Because at the end of the day, we're not the enemies. We're not like I don't want to fight with you. I want to be critical of a system and change things. But now, again, years later, almost, you know, 10 years that I've been involved, now they all understand what why it was so important to challenge power. You know, now they're all like, yes, we support you. We love you. We want you to be careful out there because it's still a very... Um, you know, it's scary out there for many trans people, for undocumented immigrants, and and because of re-elections, they want to look tough and continue to use tactics to create more fear. To you know, to stop immigration. And I, it's interesting to me how the Democratic Party also wants to position as like we care about immigrants, right? What what Abbott is doing, or putting these things on the river, wire things, and then. Vice President Kamala Harris is saying, like, oh, no, that's not inhumane, that's not. But then she goes to Guatemala and tells people not to come to the States to do it the proper way, you know what I'm saying? So those are the pieces that we need to be, when when elected officials are put in place, that we have this difficult and, and critical conversation. So again I think the work that I do uh, with familia and community is that we break some barriers and see that we have actually people on the ground have so much power that that they want us to make us feel and that we do have the best interests and solutions
0: for our people picking up on this earlier earlier this year um you attended the the national lgbtq task force um and they kicked off a uh, uh, creating change conference where you received the creating change immigration award now i know you're not in the space to receive awards but what does it mean to have your work recognized like how has i'm going to call it your increased visibility impacted your ability to you know create change and to move your initiatives forward cuz i do think a lot of what you're saying comes from your proximity to power not necessarily because you are you know, leveraging that power, but you're in spaces and you're in places and you're in front of people and you're in front of audiences where people are listening to you and taking really the things you say to heart. How has that helped your movement?
2: Yeah, you know, you're, you're correct. I don't do what I do to get recognized, to receive an award or much, much less to get an invitation back to the White House, right? I think I... I carry a responsibility. I think that when when um, certain leader gets a recognition or a community member, it's like you can no longer ignore issues that they're raising. You cannot throw them under the bus. And yeah, it's still happening. You know, even though you know the trans community is under attack and so many uh, anti-trans legislations have been proposed and some governors have signed across the South and different states, you know, even in progressive states, right? There's always this, you know, conservatives at at the local federal, excuse me, state level that wanna introduce anti-trans legislation. So you just cannot say we're we're fighting for uh, trans Americans and disregard undocumented trans people who are living in this country. And then language is very specific because the moment you say Trans-American, you're like excluding people who aren't citizens yet, yeah, you're people who are undocumented in this country. So, you know, I, I think any person who raises their voice and we see it through times, look at Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson. Now we are, you know, fortunate to have their legacy and work visible through people that have done the research and say we cannot do a disservice to sex workers because that's the main community that we're fighting for. We cannot erase our people. And, you know, we have to really support trans leadership, whether you're here, whether you were born here, whether you just got here, whether you've been here in this country for many years. So I think the movement has a responsibility to truly include all of us, right? And and don't exclude issues that make you uncomfortable or that don't, will get you resources or will not get you certain access to power because at the end of the day, uh, people will continue to come forward, right? When something impacts them directly so harshly for so long, they have to take, it has to get to a point where people have to raise their voice whether it's in the States, whether it's in Mexico or in America, or any part of the world, are, we have existed, we exist, and we will continue to exist. So I think that is the bigger message versus receiving any type of award or recognition that trans people's humanity and dignity, it's not up for debate, that we are here and we will continue to be here. And there's more people coming Who aren't physically present that will challenge all this notion of of trying to erase us, right? So I think that is what I I take when I receive some, you know, recognitions and and again try to be very mindful of of where I am and that and most importantly, that big responsibility that I have.
1: You've been very active speaking publicly engaging in actions to highlight and elevate elevate the plight of immigrants being detained at the border for years. How has this work impacted you personally? And what do you want people to know about the struggle?
2: It's been heavy. It's been really, really heavy, especially because familia started to really highlight the injustices that undocumented uh, trans women were facing in Santa Ana, California, right? The first action was 2014, right, with shutting down the intersections with Santa Ana. It's kind of close to the border, right? San Diego, Tijuana. And um, a year later, this another direct action of these injustices. And I remember there was a point where the caravans were making their way to the border in 2018, the first caravan, which was a large, you know, group of immigrants seeking asylum, <clears throat> and for me, like this issue was so personal that I wanted to like go to the border. I wanted to be on the other side to hear, to you know, support the community, because among them were LGBTQ migrants that were being mistreated, that were not being prioritized. Some shelters were turning their backs. Like you cannot come in and and you know wear makeup or wear a dress, so there was all these issues, right? So for me being here, just sort of try, listening and 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 at times felt like I couldn't really support, right, the people in need, and it just gets really really draining emotionally. It takes a toll on you. It's it it just it's it's very very heavy, you know. And knowing that because of those hard lessons during the caravans, because of the advocacy that many people have done, and again, not just familia, because it will also be unfair familia to take all the credit on this issue, because again, there's other people that don't have organizations, don't have resources, and have been advocating, right, for all people, you know, and they get no recognition, they get no resources, so just want to name that But I also feel that all that, you know, organizing, all that advocacy has made it possible for other projects to come to place and start building that, you know, structure of support. You know, we're so fortunate that Familia TQLM is co-anchoring the Border Butterflies Project, BBP, that has a physical space in Tijuana that wants to You know, still three years in existence is still figuring out a lot of the structure, but at least it had it is a place where people can seek support, whether it's legal, whether it's humanitarian, whether it's like organizing and you know, familia BLMP, Black LGBTQ Plus Migrant Project and Transgender Law Center, with the three co-anchor orgs. That because of the work that we've done, because of the advocacy that each group has done over the years, you know, in the states, this project is now live. And people have a way to learn about it, to support it. And I think, you know, that this issue, no matter how tough it gets, the migration, you know, in Central America coming to the states, that it's not going to stop. And our people need us and people need to really learn, need to be um, empathetic about struggles and issues beyond the border, you know, beyond the states and that we have a responsibility to to do something about it.
1: It's something, what you're saying is really key too because as we talk about intersectional issues, as the world gets hotter, right? As agricultural communities Um, it become more difficult to sustain. Migration will be a larger global issue. Um, And so I think the things that you are saying are so important. They're so key. And I also think about like how important it is to have diverse voices in the room, right? Like you bring such a rich perspective and often we take that for granted, right? Um, I know when I... Um, began doing like facilitation for the parent community. I run down here and we were doing classroom trainings in 20, like 20, 2007 to 2015, there was a trend that, that like you would socially transition your child in the classroom and everyone, all the parents would be told there would be a letter sent like, and this, because this was like a training that was devised by white people. And I remember hearing that and being horrified because I was like, what about undocumented people who cannot be, their families do not want a spotlight on them. They just want their child to be supported. And there's like a, there's a way in which when we begin to advocate for people, you said it earlier, when we begin to advocate for people in spaces, if you don't think about it critically and include the nuances of diverse people in the room, you harm, right? And so I think that you being here and shedding light, I mean, we could talk to you forever about just all the things because you keep saying things and I'm like, yeah, These are ways in which earlier parent movements when they were trying to do the right thing, but they were predominantly white and not realizing the impacts of that. And it becomes a footprint of how people do things. Right. It leads to like, well, this is the stat. This is how we've always done it. And I pushed back often in, in, in national spaces or local spaces say that's not safe. Right. Um, And I don't know. I'm just always thinking about all the things that you're saying. Thank you for always making me think and making everyone else think critically about what needs to continue to happen.
0: So I actually have a question for you. Earlier, you mentioned that your activism has has really begun to expand and shift beyond just trans um, and non-binary immigrants, and you've actually started to help push against anti-trans legislation affecting TGNC youth and coalition building in the South and other countries like Mexico. What has been the most, I guess, eye-opening experience for you doing this work? Regardless of all these
2: anti-trans attacks, anti-trans legislation, there is a powerful voice of allies who really get it, who make the connections, right? When you start into an activism, when you starting the movement for social justice, you feel very siloed, you feel very alone. You don't know if, if it's okay if you open up about being trans, you don't know if it's okay if you open up about being undocumented, you don't know if it's okay for you to open up or disclose any, you know, medical condition that you might have. So always like walking, right, like carefully wanting to connect, finding your place. But I feel that as powerful as the opposition is, and I'm talking about these right wing conservatives, I'm talking about this powerful media outlets that have this, you know, traditional thinking and narrow thinking that. I'm, I'm really grateful to know that there are voices like, you know, Angela Davis out there, right, that really make those key connections with intersectionality, with the prison, industrial complex issues, how impacts trans folks, how it impacts uh, gender non-binary individuals, how, you know, sex workers also, con- you know, are, you know, there are all these areas of communities that really want us to challenge and say we are part of the solution if you really make those connections. I think about, you know, um, Angela Peoples, who was the only voice at the action of the White House, you know, a Black activist, organizer, powerful leader who trusted me from the very beginning and said, this is, you are, you tell me what to do. And, and I was like, when I start challenging the bigger messaging on no one more deportation, ni una más deportacion, that includes people beyond the LGBT community, that's when you come in and her voice, you, you know, you can hear it in the video, right? You know, Lisette's explanation of how like making these connections to the separation of the border with kids, and I think their voices are so critical. And that to me was, you know, something that I, I really tried to ground and, and uplift versus someone who continues to attack us. So just being there and also um, seeing that, you know, that people get it and they don't necessarily have to be part of a certain, you know, group who faces oppression or, or violence and discrimination to fight for the right thing and be on the right side of history, right? And that's, I think also as I am fortunate to travel to different spaces, colleges, universities, that there are individuals who are, you know, with with very, very limited support figuring out where is the role in the in the fight for social justice. And that, so I think to me, I never lose sight of that. And that one of the things because you know, once you make an impact, when you think like everybody, it's ready to jump on and now people are dealing with so many layers of, of, you know, personal issues and struggles. So, so whenever people are ready to step up and those who are already, you know, in, in positions of disability and, and having a bigger impact, I think that's, those are some of the things that surprise me and Lastly, that we're not alone, you know, we're not alone in this fight. And as as much as I see all this, um, you know, conversation at, in, in U.S. Congress about, you know, trans or gender affirming care, that it is scary, it is unfortunate, but know that we have to continue to stand up in every angle of society. And that includes at the local level with your family. It includes at the state level and you know, in, in, moving all the way up to the federal level. And that there are many, many, many other voices that are ready to jump on and, and stand up, right? And I, also before I forget, I think now that I was able to travel to Mexico Another thing that would surprise me is how the resistance has been so powerful also outside the U.S., right? Especially Mexico, Central America, and that their struggle and their fight cannot be ignored because they do have very valuable lessons that can help
0: us in our current issues that we're dealing with. It's so interesting you say that because I've been looking at, the, the plight of trans people in in the UK in in Ireland in Africa obviously in places and spaces where you would you would assume that they were more refined they were more sophisticated they were more advanced and the exact same things are happening in those countries are as are happening here you have members of the very far right marginalized and, and you know I'm going to say, you know, exterminate whole groups of people because they don't align with they don't align with how they see themselves or who they believe is entitled to be a part of society, and you have this really powerful vocal opposition of the marginalized who are saying, "We will not be pushed aside. You will listen to us." You and you know, some of them are being very successful some of them are being less successful. I was looking at something that was happening in Spain and the real fear right now in Spain about a member of the far right being elected and being able to form a coalition party that will push backwards all of the positive work that's been done to support and uplift the LGBTQ plus community. And so it's, it's really, I see that there's so many similarities across the globe to these struggles that we're seeing here in the United States.
1: Where can people go to support the work you're doing? Where can they go donate? Like plug it all right here.
2: Yes. Thank you so much to both of you. But people can, you know, find us on all social medias, Familia TQLM. Um, We're Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and who knows what's happening with Twitter, but we still use Familia TQLM. And, you know, yeah, people can learn about the work, you know, they can support, the work they can plug into the work, you know we're we're you know we're moving this Familia en el Sur tour, so we're going to Atlanta, Georgia, um, this week actually, and we partner up with local groups who are working on different issues, and it's gonna be like a com- community event. You know, as a national organization, we try to be mindful and uplift work that has been done and also connecting, right, other issues. I know uh, Georgia has Stop City, you know, Stop Stop Cup City has been really a big fight and a big issue. And also want to honor that, want to make those, you know, other issues and say that we as an organization also care about that. So it's always a learning experience. It's always an opportunity to connect and to build with people. So yeah, social media, Familia TQLM.
1: I adore you, Jenny Set. Thank you for your time this morning. I always learn from you. I'm going to like leave here and probably text you and be like, I want to talk more because I haven't had a chance to talk to you in a few months, but just thank you
0: always. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, Who are we talking about today?
1: We are talking about Federico who And the 100 trans men who entered the Miss Italy beauty pageant when trans women were prohibited from competing. Federico is a trans activist whose act of protest inspired other trans men who technically met the pageant's requirements that contestants be assigned female at birth to compete. Barbarossa decided to enter the pageant under his dead name as a form of protest and solidarity with trans women. Barbarossa shared a screenshot of an email he received confirming his registration on Instagram. And then the local LGBTQ nonprofit group he works with, Mixed LGBTQIA+, shared his entry on Facebook with a statement encouraging other trans men to do the same.
0: (laughs) I I know! That miss italy didn't see that coming serves them Nobody right fucking it. bastards
1: <laughs> and that's why federico barbosa is our ally
0: of the week congratulations to federico now on to our asshole of the week our asshole of the week absolutely positively has to go to former vice president and current bootlicker mike pence As part of his 2024 presidential campaign platform, Mike Pence has suggested reintroducing the ban on transgender service members in the military. The former U.S. vice president was an integral part of the Trump administration that banned trans military personnel from serving openly in 2019, even though that legislation was ultimately overturned in 2021.
1: Pence's military ban is really just a modernized version of the controversial don't ask, don't tell policy. And this is what I'm telling you, Stephen. We don't even see it being just recycled, repurposed, given a new name. We allow the marginalization to come along and be like, oh, that's just normal. And um, I'm so frustrated with people marginalizing LGBTQA folks in the name of Jesus. Boo on Mike Pence.
0: And that is why Mike Pence is our asshole of the week. Boom. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Jenny Set Gutierrez for spending time with us. And of course, I want to bow down and give Bob propers to my wonderful co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for rocking so hard with me every single episode.
1: Steven, I can't tell you how happy I am. We went on this journey together. Let's keep going. Let's bring on more guests. Thank you so much for being an incredible podcast host, co-host, you know, I got you. And of course we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thank you for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast.
0: And as usual, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things to stay up to date with everything we're doing here on the Parent Advocate Podcast.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: If you are thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7 365 days a year from anywhere in the US. It is 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the human rights campaign at hrc.org.
1: You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.